Well, good morning, everybody. It is great to be with you as we dive back into our series. Keep going. I want to kick off with a question. Do you right now want to know God's will for your life? Do you want to know his direction, what he has for you in your life? Maybe you know that you do. Uh, well, I know listening will have quite a lot of students either in school or in uni. And that's kind of what that's about, isn't it? What, what am I going to do after? What am I going to learn? What course? What this am I going to go into next? If you're in like second or, or final year at uni and you're thinking, I don't have something lined up yet. Maybe you're really consciously asking, God, what is your will for me? What do you want me to do? And if you are grappling with a big decision in an area of your life, then you'll be thinking like this as well. Maybe if you're asking questions like, uh, should I move to that city? Should I marry that guy? Should I change my treatment in this way? Should I go after that promotion? Should I move to that nation? Whatever it might be, if you're thinking about something, a big decision in your life, then you want to know God's will, don't you? I guess we all do. Well, if that's you and you want to know God's will for your life, I am going to bless your socks off today because we are not going to have to speculate, guess or wonder about God's will. We're going to see it in black and white. And as well as blessing you, I'm going to really infuriate you because we're not going to go really anywhere near talking about any of those important questions that I just raised. You're going to see what I mean. And I think God's really going to speak to you. Our passage is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. It says this. Finally, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus to live in a way that pleases God, as we have taught you. You live this way already, and we encourage you to do so even more. For you remember what we taught you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. God's will, here it is, is for you to be holy. So stay away from all sexual sin. Then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honour. Not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. Never harm or cheat a fellow believer in this matter by violating his wife. For the Lord avenges all such sins as we have solemnly warned you before. God has called us to live holy lives, not impure lives. Therefore, Anyone who refuses to live by these rules is not disobeying human teaching, but is rejecting God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. That's a challenging passage, but did you see it in verse three? No longer do you ever have to speculate. You don't have to guess. You don't have to pray and work it out. God's will for your life is clear. Verse three, God's will is for you to be holy. Now, if you're honest, does that come as an anticlimax? Because <laughs> we thought we were going to get into the real stuff of life, the stuff we're really interested in, romantic relationships, career progression, calling. And instead, it's just, oh, yeah, holy. If you had that reaction, as I did, let it be a dramatic 
wake-up call moment in your Christian faith. Because we just heard that God, the centre of it all, the most majestic, magnificent, powerful, creative, gracious, generous, loving, dynamic being in the whole of everything is willing, willing, wanting, working towards, committed to, energised about, throwing himself into you, you, a little tiny speck on a little tiny speck of a planet, in a little tiny speck of a solar system, in a little tiny speck of a galaxy, in a pretty vast universe that was breathed out by God's powerful word, you who gets it wrong, you who knows your own inconsistencies, the spite that can bubble up, the lust, the anger, the falling short of even your own pretty puny standards at times, the million ways which you worship wrongly and worship wrong things at any given moment. You, the real you, God is willing you to be holy, holy. We roll our eyes at that as if that's a negative, constrictive thing, but holy is the defining characteristic of God. He's holy, holy, holy. And so holiness is to be like God. It is to be lifted from our state and to be drawn into being, sharing, carrying something of the characteristics of God himself. It is his perfection, his radiance, his goodness, his grace, his glory, his holiness, his set apart from all that is dark and evil, his radiant, bright goodness. And God is willing you, you to be holy. That is a crescendo verse in the Bible. And yet we, with our small small, small view of God and our disordered view of other things and how important they are and where they should fit in our priorities, we just roll our eyes at it. Now look, of course God cares about the the directional questions in your life. He cares about whether you're going to marry or not marry, whether you're going to go for that job or not that job. He cares where you live. He created your life. He cares about your life. So don't mishear me. But there is something else he cares about far more than those directional decisions. It's that the you who will not get married or will get married or will do that job or will not do that job or will move there or won't move there, that the you who does or doesn't do those things would be transformed to be holy, leaving behind our old selves and habits and old ways of being and growing by his grace more and more into the image of the beautiful perfection of Jesus. That is what he's willing in your life. You want to step into God's will for you. God's will is for you to be holy. And then Paul says, so he now hones in and gets specific. He says, so stay away from all sexual sin." He focuses in on the area of sex and relationships. And so that's what we're going to do for the rest of our time this morning. 
And I'm gonna get really practical, as practical as I can in a few minutes by giving eight, yes, you heard it right, motivations or helps for staying away, as Paul says, from sexual sin in our lives. But I'm aware that even talking about sex from the Bible is really hard because we have an instinctive cultural reaction, don't we, that says that the Bible's view of sex is bad, is limiting, is even oppressive. And I also know that we carry a lot of individual experiences around this stuff. We will carry hurt, we will carry regret, a sense of shame. In different ways, probably all of us have that. And that's all hard to deal with in one talk, not least when you've promised eight, yes, eight points coming up in a moment. And for more in-depth teaching on this, I'd really recommend our Blueprint preaching series from 2019, where we went through in a series of talks in a lot more depth, uh, these things. But just a few quick responses. Firstly, don't buy the lie that Christians are the only people who draw lines sexually, because everyone draws lines sexually. Everyone thinks that there are things that are right, sexually healthy, good, and when practiced in a culture, lead to life, joy, and flourishing. Everybody thinks that. Everyone in your school, everyone in your uni, everyone in your workplace. And everybody thinks that there are things that are wrong sexually, unhealthy sexually, and when practiced and celebrated in a culture, lead to pain and sorrow and hurt. Everybody thinks that. The only question is, where do you draw your lines and on what basis do you draw them there? Then the second thing just to clock is that I'd say we're in a huge tipping point moment in our culture where we're undergoing a real rethink around the accepted norms of sexual behaviour. There are behaviours that have been normalised, have been uh, acceptable in our society around sex, that we are now clocking that they weren't leading to our human flourishing. A feminist writer, Jessica Valenti, who's not a Christian, uh, wrote after some men challenged her when she was uh, supporting the Me Too movement and, uh, and calling out some awful sexualized behavior among men. And when she was speaking about this, lots of men pushed back at her and said, what are you doing? You're just, this is just normal male behavior. You need to just get off your high horse. You're so over the top. That's normal. And what she replied was this, part of what women are saying right now is that what the culture considers normal sexual encounters are not working for us and are sometimes harmful. So she's saying, she's saying, not a Christian, but even if there's a normal way of doing things that lots of people practice, actually, what if our culture's view of normal isn't working and isn't healthy? What if we need a new normal? What if we need to draw the lines in a different place? To which I, as a Christian, say yes and amen. Because into a culture that's rethinking where it draws its lines sexually, the Bible draws them clear and hard, and that can feel a bit stark, but what if that's actually a gift in our culture? In a confused culture, what if a, a blueprint for sex and relationships that was healthy and led to flourishing was a gift? Particularly when it's combined with the generous availability of forgiveness and grace and cleansing and true and deep intimacy that is available in the gospel. 
And if that was the case, I'd say Christianity's teaching on sex and relationships could be water to a thirsty culture. But more on that another time, hey, because we've got eight points to crack on with. So I want to get really practical before we finish and give you eight tips or motivations for men, for women, for those struggling with uh, sexual sin with other people physically or through uh, tech, people who are married, people who are single. I want to give you eight things from this passage that help us to stay away from sexual sin. Number one, the best context for this fight is a family. And by that, I don't mean a nuclear family. I mean the family of God's people. Let's be real for a moment. Being sexually pure as a Christian can be really, really challenging. It can be a real battle, a real fight. It is not a little picnic on the playing field. It is hard. And I think because Paul knows that, his start to these verses is really deliberate. He says, dear brothers and sisters. See, I know from my own walk, becoming a Christian and growing as a Christian, that one of the main enablers of continued sexual sin is shame. Where when we want to break free and we realise we need to break free, we know we need some help and we're not quite sure though if we speak up we'll be met with help or whether we'll be met with rejection. And let me just say that it is on all of us, whether this is your struggle or not, to ensure that in this church people who want help to get free from sexual sin are not met with judgement and a cold shoulder but are met with gracious generous love and support. Tip number two, remember that do's flow from done's. It's easy to read this or hear this as a Christian who struggles with sexual sin and feels so condemned because you know you have struggles in this area. Or if you're not a Christian yet and you, you feel you're interested, but, but suddenly you hear this and you think, well, that's not me. I, I'm not squeaky clean in this area in the past or the present or things that have happened that I now regret for whatever reason or things that have happened to me or, or whatever it might be. And you think, well, I can never be accepted by God then. But whenever God calls you to do something like stay away from all sexual sin, it is always in light of something that God has already done in your life. Life. That's why we're in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. And to my reading, this is the first command. It's the first instruction of the whole letter because every other sentence is a description of something that's happened or a retelling of their story of coming to faith or declaring what Jesus has already done in their life by the gospel. They are already welcomed. They are already loved. They're already accepted. They're already cherished. They're already part of God's family. And all of that was top loaded as a gift of grace when they simply turned to Jesus in a state and said, help, I need your rescue. This is the gospel. We do not need to be sexually struggle free or sin free or mistake free or past or present sin free to be loved by God. No, we are loved by God. We are welcomed by God. He saves us and welcomes us. The Bible says Christ died for us while we were still sinners. It is done. 
And then from that place, when we've accepted that offer, when we're right with him, when we've made Jesus our rescuer and we're cleansed, then from that place of acceptance and security comes the do. Hey, stay away from all sexual sin. Now live it out. Now live out your new identity. Now live like a dearly loved child of God because that is what you already are. It's that way round. Tip number three, beware arriving. Verse one says this, you live this way already and we encourage you to do so even more. Paul is saying, don't think that at some point, just because you've had some victory in this area, that you arrive, that you you go, oh, I'm perfect. I can take my foot off the gas. And really my own role now on this issue is to uh, look at those mere sinners who I can pity and perhaps either help them a little or maybe mostly tut and judge them because I've arrived. No, Paul says more and more. Yeah, if you're living like this, fantastic. But you press on, you kick on, keep growing. Beware arriving. Tip number four, be God saturated. These verses are about living sexually pure lives. And so as you'd expect, it mentions sex. It mentions sex once and it also mentions lust. It mentions lust once. But do you know that it mentions God nine times in eight verses? Lord Jesus, God, the Lord Jesus, God, God, the Lord, God, God, his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit squeezed in at the end. Very good. It linguistically is showing us what is theologically and practically true when you're seeking to fight sexual sin and grow in holiness. Yes, you need to be aware of sin. Yes, you need to fight sin. But first and foremost, it is to be saturated with God, to know we are God's, to know his love, to be captured by his glory as one book, a very helpful book on fighting pornography addiction is called. It's called be captured by a better vision. This idea that we're captivated with this sin and it's not by focusing on that that we grow, but when we see there's God and I don't need this little sin anymore. Like a toddler who's obsessed with a little pack of rice cakes from Aldi and then they turn around and they see a mountain of chocolate cake and they drop the Aldi rice cake straight away because there's something bigger and better. And that is what Paul is saying here. If you're stuck in sin, yes, you've got to think about that. But become someone who is obsessed with, addicted to, saturated with God. And then bit by bit, you wean yourself off little loves. You see, I don't need that sin. I have him. Be God saturated. Number five, flee sexual sin. Don't flirt with sexual sin. Verse three says, God's will for you is to be holy so stay away from all sexual sin not get as near to it as you feel you just about technically could right or uh, edge closer slowly and slowly through your many years of life through small steps of compromise so that over many years you end up somewhere that you never thought you'd end up not that stay away Flee it. Don't flirt with it. Tip number six, realise it's not just you. This impacts. Verse six says, never harm or cheat a fellow believer in this matter. See, one of the reasons I think that 
the Christian view of sex seems weird and outdated and a bit ugly in our culture is because we tend to think in our culture that sex is a private thing. And as long as there's consent, if it involves other people, what you do behind closed doors is private and harmless. And so how can anyone say, well, there should be right or wrong about this or some sort of sense of sin or righteousness? It's, it's just a private, harmless thing. Well, that is not true. It's plainly not true when it involves another person because that person has a past, that other person has a body, emotions, a mind, mental health, well-being, a soul, a future, relationships. And so our actions and our compromise in these areas aren't just about us, they're about another person. But it's, it's even true of so-called private harmless sexual sin. For example, watching pornography by yourself in your bedroom and no one knows and it was all up there anyway. So, hey, it's no bother, is it? Except that's not true. We know that pornography creates and trains us in unrealistic expectations, which are then very damaging to relationships, present and future we know that watching pornography trains us to normalise misogyny and trains us to think in misogynistic ways. We know it normalises a me-centric view of the world and of sex and of relationships and thus trains us to be really self-centred and expect everyone to just do what we want in life. We know it's not kind or loving or gentle or generous and so it trains us to be cold and consumeristic and transactional in life and love and, and relationships. We know videos, images and clicks on many mainstream porn sites are directly enabling, resourcing, funding, sustaining the practice of human trafficking. We could go on. These are hard facts to face up to and they're not aired here to rise the shame factor if you struggle with this you don't need your shame factor raising I know that but they are aired here to shine a light and to sound an alarm that this is not just you this impacts don't buy the myth that it's private and harmless it isn't and if you're entangled you need to rise up as a radical in this day and say it to someone and get help. Because it's not just you, this impacts. Tip number seven, we're nearly there. Fear God. Verse six says, the Lord avenges all such sins as we have solemnly warned you before. Do you need to hear Paul's solemn warning here the gospel says that you must you must repent of this now and run to jesus the gospel gloriously also says you can repent of this you'll not be turned away jesus says anyone who comes to me i'll never turn away and so you can run to him but you must run to him you must fear god and number eight, the last one, beware turning divine commands on this stuff into mere human suggestions. Verse seven says, God 
has called us to live holy lives, not impure lives. Therefore, anyone who refuses to live by these rules is not disobeying human teaching, but is rejecting God. You know, Satan's oldest trick is to whisper, did God really say? And just to make us question it. And look, it's okay to doubt. I doubt. All of us struggle with doubt at different times in our lives. It's okay to question. It's okay to grapple with. Jude, the the book of Jude in the Bible says, uh, be merciful on those who doubt. And so you can wrestle with questions here, interpretations. You can think that stuff through, but beware nice sounding interpretations of the Bible that make clearly warned against behaviour sound neutral or even sound like it should be celebrated. Ultimately, to refuse to live by these rules is not disobeying human teaching, it's rejecting God. And you don't want to do that. And perhaps more importantly, to land here, you don't need to do that. Because on the cross, Jesus took our place and took our punishment for all the ways that we have got this stuff wrong. The Bible says he became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. That is that Jesus became on the cross a sexual sinner and was punished by God for our sins in this area so that we don't have to be if we turn to him we can be treated as the goodness the mercy the kindness the justice the righteousness of God on the cross Jesus became someone who slept around for cheap thrills so that we could be clothed in his brave persevering faithfulness Jesus on the cross became a porn addict he took on our search history and all the things that we have looked at that we would love to forget but we can't that God saw as well Jesus took it on the cross and in the greatest swap as he takes our search history we get his and so we are treated by the father as if all we'd ever looked up on the internet was how to generously sacrifice ourselves for the good of others how to protect women how to care for image bearers of God and we are treated by the father with all of Jesus's past because he's taken ours this is the gospel And Jesus, therefore, can say, anyone who comes to me, I'll never turn away. Jesus can say, if you are burdened by this and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. He invites us, he draws us not to condemn, but to rescue and free. But you have to come to him. You have to come to him for the first time. And maybe some of you need to do that today. And you need to come to him again and again and live in his forgiveness and know it afresh so that the do's flow from what he has done in you again. We're done. It says God's will for you is to be holy. When you say yes to him, to his will for your life. There's going to be a minute now where there's just silence for you to speak to God about what he's 
provoked you to think about. And then we'll wrap up our meeting.